Now, uh, we have talked about, last time we finished up the Reformation, and we talked about the reasons for the Reformation and how God used the Reformation uh, to break the Roman Catholic Church's iron grip of what was taking place in Europe. And um, we saw, really, the heyday of the Philadelphian Church Age. And uh, we, there's so many dimensions to it, and I'm, what I'm trying to do is to, you know, give you all the different angles of it, because it's an amazing thing to study. Um, there's so many different aspects to it. And what we want to talk about tonight is, uh, in connection with the Philadelphian Church Age, is another angle on it. And this is what we're going to talk about tonight, is what is commonly called the Great Awakening. Now, I told you when we started the book of Acts, excuse me, started church history. I also told you when we started the book of Acts, but church history is the fact that uh, all history is built around two basic simple concepts. We know that God has a plan, and that plan is for the furtherance of God's kingdom. So all through history, we find that basically when you boil down history, History is always going to be in relationship to what God is doing. So when God does something, uh, as we view it from a historical standpoint, you know, we see it many times without the perspective of what God is doing, and and that can be a, a very limited way. But we know that all history is simply God moving in a direction to accomplish something, and then the devil moving in opposition to stop it. And that basically is the two aspects of history you've gotten. I don't care what you study in history. Uh, when you start studying history, you find that all history is built around those two elements. And when we get into the Reformation and get into the Philadelphian church age, uh, you're going to see it uh, again. And I've already talked about the United States of America and how that God obviously had preserved that uh, this country, uh, not letting it fall into the hands of any dominating uh, country, because God had plans for it when he brought the Bible-believing Christians out of Europe and took them to a land where nobody could get a foothold on, on persecuting them for their religious beliefs. There's no question about it that this country was formed and based on the concept of religious freedom. You just can't get around that. I mean, that's not popular today, but that is the truth. And so we're going to look at, <clears throat> we're going to look at the first great awakening. Now in, in our country, <clears throat> our country started in about 1700 uh, uh, and comes up through uh, to where we're at today. And, uh, you know, a little over 200 years. There have been uh, seven uh, awakenings in the history of the United States. And those seven awakening, awakenings or in respect to what we've talked about also in church history, that infallible process of man, movement, uh, machine, and monument. That the cycle of history follows a line of human collapse. That if God doesn't continually inject himself into something, it, it corrupts itself and falls. Book of Judges is our great example of that. Well, these seven great awakenings are, and we're going to look at them as we come through, not all of them tonight. We're going to look at the first one tonight. But these seven great awakenings are God 
injecting himself into the United States of America down through its 200-plus years to keep America on the right track. And you're going to find that around on each side of these are going to be the devil trying to take the edge off of what God is doing. And then God gives an awakening to bring the people back to God. And uh, we see it. And that's what we're going to get into tonight. But we have seen now the Reformation. We've seen uh, the development of the Bible and the development of preaching, the development of the English language starting with Wycliffe, uh, coming around 1200-something, coming all the way up to uh, the 1611. Uh, we saw the changes in Europe and the changes in England that brought about all of that. We saw Eng- England become the monarch of the world under the King James Bible. And then we saw America being founded as the only nation on earth other than the nation of Israel with God and his word. Um, and then we see the Holy Spirit of God begin to move up through this country. And uh, we saw that from the pressure of the church-state systems in Europe, we saw about 1620, the Mayflower. Uh, Everybody on that Mayflower was a Bible-believing Christian. Everybody on that Mayflower came over uh, for one express purpose, and that was to flee the persecution. There wasn't one person on that boat or uh, that did not have someone that was persecuted or killed by the Roman Catholic Church. And they were seeking a place uh, that uh, they could have and read their Bible the way that they wanted to. And, of course, I told you last time we were together that 20 years later, just 20 years later, 60,000 people have followed uh, them to this country uh, and it's the greatest country that the world has ever seen outside of the nation of Israel that God has established. We hear words today like freedom, peace, unity, and liberty. But real liberty is, has lost its definition today, just like so many other words that we use today that people do not know the definition of. Liberty is a political word today. But yet, liberty is defined for you in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, and this is a definitive passage on liberty. And it says in 2 Corinthians three seventeen that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And all this crap about liberty, you know, and democracy and freedom of people and people's rights and all that stuff, uh, all that stuff is put out by political organizations so you think that their system is better than the one that you got so they can control you instead of the system that's already controlling you. The only true liberty that you and I are going to have is the liberty that we have in Christ Jesus that once you get saved, you're free. That is the liberty that everybody talks about today. And when you go to the Washington, D.C., and you find the great uh, words inscribed on those great buildings that go back to our founding fathers, and it talks about liberty. It's not talking about liberty in the sense that you and I talk about it today. It's talking about liberty in this Bible sense that those founding fathers understood. And these groups are the Bible-believing groups who come over preaching and winning American Indians to Christ and anybody else that will listen. During this time, and we've touched on this, when the colonies begin to get established, we see Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth University, and Columbia University. Uh, Today, they are apostate, uh, liberal, uh, absolutely uh, demonic in everything that they teach. And yet, they were originally set up in this day to be uh, training stations for missionaries 
to the American Indians. That was their original purpose. We see that what happens was, is this, is these, these institutions are founded for that purpose, but then, again, the apostasy begins to creep in. And what happens is that that apostasy begins to kill these schools and their zeal, along with the churches that had a zeal, so God then brings about the first great awakening, and we're gonna we're gonna focus on that once we lay some background to it here. And uh, though there are there's some persecution in America, um, it's a big place, and we I told you how that where the Bible uh, is not uh, tolerated, uh, and you find places that set up in New England like Salem with some of the Puritan groups that are almost like Catholics. And uh, they begin to persecute Bible believers. You just move out 30 miles or 100 miles out west, and uh, it's all yours. There's nobody out there. And uh, in the, by 1750s, literally hundreds of Baptist churches are being set up and preaching the gospel all over the eastern seaboard uh, states. And then, as I said, the cycle begins to set in. We saw God do a great thing by bringing the... Uh, uh, pilgrims here who wanted to establish uh, the religious freedom. And then we see right on the heels of that, we see our first religion coming over from Europe, and it's the religion of Unitarianism. And uh, it begins to creep in, and it creeps into these schools, and it creeps into the pulpits, and it becomes a, a, a dead orthodoxy teaching that basically uh, uh, will send you straight to hell. And we see this cycle begin to move in. It affects Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, and Columbia. But God raised up some great men that stood alone against the creeping uh, uh, educational system that wanted to destroy the Bible. And I, and I, I want to make this point here. And I, all of my ministry, I have been accused, and it's a, it's a rightly accusation, all my life in my ministry, I have been accused about, about, about being against higher education. When all, all the other churches were sending their kids out to Bible colleges, I would never send anybody out to Bible college. There isn't a Bible college on this planet that I would send anybody to. Um, you know, and, and, I, and, and I've always been accused of being against higher education. And, you know, simply put, Anything outside the local church, and I know there's not many good local churches today, but any higher education outside the local church, I don't care if it's Penn Valley, I don't care if it's a community college, I don't care if it's UMKC, I don't care where it is. You need to understand that higher education has in its basic fundamental foundation the purpose of destroying anything about the Word of God in your life. Now, maybe it won't do it. Uh, I'm not saying that you should never go to college. What I am saying is you should never go to college until you first are very grounded in the Word of God that you don't get influenced by the bull crap that you're going to hear there. It's going to destroy you. Uh, and if you're not firmly seated in the Bible, we'll mess with your mind to the place that it may begin to question uh, you know, your belief in the things of the Scriptures. But higher education has, always has and always will have one goal. I'm not saying that they don't teach you good things. I'm not saying you don't get some kind of an education. I am saying this, 
that every one, every one of them exists for the sole purpose of putting and destroying your faith in God and the Word of God. And that's exactly what they've come to. Um, because we saw where Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Dartmouth, and Columbia started out that way, they all wound up as what they are today. And uh, another thing you need to understand, that wherever the plain teaching of the Word of God exists, education will rise to confuse it and try to stop it. It's hard for us living in the time that we live in, seeing the battles that we fight up against things like this, uh, without an understanding of church history, you see that everybody back through history struggled with the same battles. And they were attacked just like you and I will be attacked. One of the forerunners of, and we talked about the big three, Whitfield, Edwards, and Wesley. These three men were really the men that were the catapult of the first great awakening, especially Whitfield. And, uh, but before these men... God used a man that uh, uh, you need to know about that was the great forerunner of Whitfield and Wesley and Jonathan Edwards. And he was really the spark plug that, that God used to bring the Great Awakening through Whitfield, Edwards, and Wesley. And his name is William Tennant. And he lives about 1673 to 1760. The man who trained him was his father. His father thought that there was no educational system that could prepare his son for God's work um, other better than his own father. And his dad believed in the absolute infallible word of God was the King James 1611 authorized version. He raised three boys in a log cabin, and he taught them the Bible inside out. Uh, this non-accredited log cabin uh, and the man Gilbert Tennant was the man that God basically used in time to disrupt the three major religious groups uh, and tore them right down the middle. And you got to kind of understand what was going on. And I'll try to put this in a perspective for you. When 20 years after the pilgrims have gotten here, you have basically three major religious groups. You have the Presbyterian group. You have the, what they call the Congregational group. That would be the uh, Church of England uh, in America. We call them Episcopalian over here in America today. Sometimes you find Congregational, they're called Congregational churches, but uh, they would be out of your Church of England. And then obviously we find the Baptist Church. Now what had happened is this. When they got here, God made a great movement. The devil stepped in, and as he always does, he began to bring in the deadness and the apostasy. And the Presbyterian church went into apostasy. The congregational churches went into apostasy. And the Baptist churches, uh, for the most part, went into apostasy. Now, within these groups, there were still believers who did not buy into what the deadness went. Just like today, we are a church that does not buy in to 99.999% of the Baptist churches today. We are an exact replica of what you had back here. And William Tennant, William Tennant, God used him through his preaching to split these church groups right down the middle and bring out the Bible-believing element out of it, and they separated from the dead side of it. For instance, in the Presbyterian groups, When he split that church through his preaching, uh, 
they were, they were basically called the old side and the new side. The old side uh, resigned in Philadelphia, and they were the deadwood, uh, the amillennial and the Calvinists and all of the people who were absolutely dead. The new side was out of New York, and they were the soul-winning, premillennial, missionary-minded group of the Presbyterian Church. In the Congregational Church, that got split down the middle. The old group that stayed dead in apostasy was called the Old Lights. And the good guys who got a handle on the Bible and began to do what God called them to do were called the New Lights. In the Baptist churches, the ones that stayed in the, 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 the lethargic mindset and stayed in the rut were called the Regular Baptists. The group that that went with the Holy Spirit of God and became the driving force was called the separatists. And so you see that by the preaching of William Tennant, this split of these three main religious groups, the Holy Spirit of God brought in the preaching of Whitfield, Wesley, and and, uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, and brought about a great awakening. But it had to be split. It had to be divided. And God used Tenet to split the thing, get the right groups that were the Bible-believing groups away from the dead groups, and then he brought in three men that preached to those groups. The other dead side was gone. But he took those alive groups that wanted to do what was right with the Bible, and through those groups he brings about the first great awakening that takes place. The great awakening lasts by some uh, assessments, for 30 years. It starts in Northampton, Massachusetts. And it starts with the preaching of Whitfield. It's commonly given as a, the dates around 1726 to 1756, approximately. You can't put an exact time element on it, but that's basically what you have. All the great missionaries and preachers whom we have already talked about, we're going to go back and look at some more here, and already studied, are byproducts of this great spiritual awakening, the likes of which the world will never see again. I don't know if you've ever went to Boston, New Hampshire, up in the New England area. Uh, It would be hard to believe that those nations or those states were at one time Bible-believing states. They are today the most liberal, especially Massachusetts. Uh, you know, the Kennedys, dynasties, and, uh, and they are so liberal in everything that they do. And it's hard to believe that one time that they were the absolute hotbed of Bible Christianity on the American eastern seaboard. But everything works through. You see, that revival, that great awakening died out, and then those groups that were hot stayed hot, but the dead groups stayed dead, and in time, it just keeps moving, and that's why you go up to uh, New England today, and it's predominantly Roman Catholic. It's predominantly dead. It's predominantly, uh, you find that uh, uh, it's just like it was in, is in Europe. It's absolutely almost to the point where it's amoral. And during this time, uh, the great preachers, and we've talked about these guys, George Whitfield. Uh, Charles Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, they were really the catalyst by which once Talmadge got the thing all tore up, then these three guys 
tore it up even more. But here again, and this is something that you don't think about, these men were severely criticized by the educated class. You've got to put it in perspective. They faced exactly what we face today. Today, the idea is that if you've not been to Bible college, you can't do anything for God, or can you be anything for God? And that was the same mindset that they had back here. These men were men who did not fit into that mold, into that system. These are men that were called by God, and these are men that were empowered by God. And these men were the one that God used. And any time God uses you versus somebody else, and that person is a dead Christian or an unsaved man, you're going to have issues. And that's exactly what happened. God did nothing with the churches and it took these men and was doing everything. And envy comes in and, of course, a jealousy comes in. And so they're severely persecuted. Um, they, they, were called, uh, they, were, they were called all kinds of names. They, they tried their hardest to bring America uh, to her knees through dead Orthodox religion like they had in Europe. But God had other plans and for 30 years, these guys really uh, sowed the seed that was going to have shock after shock for many, many years to come. Jonathan Edwards is thrown out of his church. And uh, he's kicked out of his church, and he dies of smallpox at 47 years of age. The Methodists under Wesley are denounced everywhere as the authors of confusion. The Quakers... Uh, they got their name by shaking, uh, by the conviction of God's Holy Spirit. They're, they're, they're ridiculed. Uh, George Whitfield is ridiculed. All of these guys, uh, it, it's just like it was, you know, again, we forget. We think that, that, you know, people in churches many times suffer from what I call occupational dominancy. You know what occupational dominancy is? Occupational dominancy is you and me getting to the place that we think what we're doing is the most important thing and nothing else anybody else does is important. And of course, that's just not true. And we also have a tendency to think that what we go through today, that because it's so bad, that they didn't go through that down through history. Not only did Wesley, Whitfield, and Edwards pay a price and was hated by the educated class, but if you know your Bible, it reminds you exactly what the apostles, who were unlearned men too, as far as the world is concerned, were going through. My favorite verse, to put it in context, is Acts chapter 4, verse 13. And it simply says this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And took knowledge of them. Why? That they had been with Jesus. You see the difference? They faced it back in the early book of Acts. The early churches, the early apostles, they were completely against everything that Orthodox Judaism stood for. And of course, they paid the price, just like Whitfield, Wesley, and, and uh, Edwards paid the price by the educated crowd. Just like you and I will pay the price. Nothing really ever changes. They're called church splitters. They're called unlearned men. They're called ignorant of education. Uh, they're called uh, 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 disrespectful of learning and education. 
But brother, just like Acts chapter 4, they have the power of God. And uh, students at Harvard and Yale were told to stay away from Edwards and Whitfield and not go to their meetings. Uh, but both schools got a good cleansing of God's word. And it was things like that they did that, uh, it, that really uh, started and kicked off the Great Awakening. From 1700 to 1800, America had her first great lesson on history and the Bible. And she should have learned that following any great movement, and boy, it's so true in your own personal life and everything that you do, and it's certainly true in this church or any church, uh, that she should have learned that following any great movement of God's Holy Spirit, soul winning, revival, mass evangelism, all of that good stuff, then it comes. It always has and it always will. And you're going to have the, the law of human collapse that the devil is going to try to come in and turn the thing around and bring it and nullify the power of God by refining it and making it not so offensive. The devil don't care if you're a Christian. He just doesn't want you to witness and be an on-fire Christian. He doesn't care if you go to church. He doesn't just want you to come to this church. He doesn't care what you do with your life as a Christian as long as you don't do anything that's going to disrupt the status quo. And though the Great Awakening was over by, what, 1756 to 1760 someplace in there, the tremors went on for 50 or 75 years. For out of this Great Awakening and this revival comes the Great Missionary Movement, the Great Missionary Societies, the Great Religious Tract Societies, the uh, Princeton, Dartmouth, the Sunday School Program, the influence of, of some are still felt today. Uh, the strengthening of the church, a return to soul winning. People got back to a scriptural concept of salvation. Prayer came back into the lives of people. Higher moral standards came back uh, into, the, uh, into the colonies. They got a missionary vision. And lastly, the influence on the political life in America, which would frame our own constitution some 15 years later and prepare the way uh, for what we commonly know as the Revolutionary War. There's not a part of American history that you can separate out of the Bible. And when you do, you lose what America is all about. The problem in America today is the reason why we have so many problems we have is because we've lost the footprints of God in what we're trying to accomplish. By the time we get to the 1800s, you know, we need to stop and look at and how this thing develops because it's very important to keep track of the two lines that I started with when we started this, and we've kind of developed them. Now, let me bring you through these here and, and, and put it into a context for you. We started out with two lines, remember? Now, let's bring up the false line. <coughs> we started out around 400 A.D. with the Roman Catholic Church. We saw that in 869, they had a church split, and now we have an eastern branch of the Roman Catholic Church, or what we commonly call the Greek Orthodox Church. We saw another split in 1534 with Henry VIII, and we saw from that the Church of England. Then we saw, uh, during the Reformation, we saw uh, three more groups split out. We saw the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, we saw the Lutheran Church in Germany. 
And then we saw from that the what they called the separatist groups that came out of that. We saw the Puritans, the Episcopalians, the Congregationalists, the Quakers, uh, the Mennonites, the Amish, the Pietists, the, uh, the Methodists, the Moravians, the Dunkards. Uh, all of these groups are split-off groups out of these groups that came by during the Reformation. And that brings us right up to where we're at with about 1800. All of these churches... All of these churches, even though when you get into the 1600 up to the day with the Pietists and the Moravians, uh, now the, uh, the, we, know, we look at the Amish today and the Mennonites today, and uh, we look at them and, you know, they look like they live back in the 1800s. Most people do not understand that the Amish and the Mennonites at one point were very, very, very Bible fundamental. Uh, they were a group that broke off from, the, uh, from some of these groups here in this line, and they were very, very fundamental in what they believed. They were very evangelistic. They were very soul-winning. They had the right Bible. Uh, but as time went on, the Amish and the Amenonites went back into the apostasy, uh, and today they're absolutely worthless. I mean, they do absolutely nothing. You're going to find that the that these groups uh, make up the line that even though as toward the end, like I said, 1600 on, you find some good groups in them. The majority of them form that dead line that uh, that is the wrong line. Then we have the second line, and that is the line that comes out of Antioch of Syria in Acts chapter 11. And we follow this line through, and this will be your true line. You'll find the Monetist about 160, the Donatist about 300, the Menetians about 250, uh, the Nestorians about 300, and then moving up through to the Dark Ages, we find the Polysians, the Bogomiles, the Catherii, the Huguenots, the Albigensians, the Waldensians, the Lollards, the group that become what we know as the Anabaptist, and then by the time we get to the 1600s, 1700s, they're called Baptist. And this will be your true line. And that pretty much accounts for every religious group that you're going to find up to this point. Notice, there are no Jehovah Witnesses in this group. Notice, there are no Mormons. Notice, there are no Seventh-day Adventists. Notice, there's no Charismatics anywhere to be found here. Notice, there's no none of the groups that will get into those groups later. Those groups are what we call the American cults. And uh, you don't find them in church history anywhere. No, uh, no Church of Christ here. Everything here is, is, is everything that you got up to about 1800 and brings you up to that point, clearly showing you the two lines. Now, America begins to grow, and she begins to unite. And she basically, at her beginning, she's still under England. And the king at this time would be King George. And uh, they're under, uh, they're under uh, British rule. And um, they start their colonies. Uh, they're under the British thumb. Uh, British soldiers are here. And uh, I believe it was King George V, I think. I, I might be wrong on that, but it was King George anyhow. He is the king of England, and they're under his sovereignty. And then uh, a little war pops up that most people, uh, we don't talk a lot about today. Most people don't know a lot about it. 
Um, but in, in, in a history, church history, it's very important. And it's what is commonly called, uh, you know, we put so much emphasis on the Revolutionary War, we forget that before the Revolutionary War, there was another war. Who knows what that war was? Anybody want to raise your hand? What was it? The French and Indian War. Now, what was the French and Indian War? Let me put it into a Bible context for you. The French and Indian War, again, God was establishing himself in these colonies, and the Word of God was growing, and Baptist churches were popping up all over the place. So the French and Indian War was a battle between France and Britain that France wanted to get defeat Britain and wanted to take over the colonies, i.e., it's, a, it's the Roman Catholic Church again through France, a Roman Catholic nation, defeating England and trying to get uh, the colonies under French so the Roman Catholic Church could get a foothold. Let me tell you something. If that would have happened, we'd had a, we'd had a Roman Catholic Church state in America, and that didn't happen. The reason why it's called the French and Indian War, because the French enlisted the Indians to help them, as the British enlisted the Indians to help them, so it's called the French and Indian War. It lasts approximately 1752 to 1760. And it takes place basically uh, for a geographical location of it, the Ohio Valley, Pennsylvania, New York. Uh, up to that point, everything beyond that west was still wilderness and there was no point and uh, the, the colonies and the, and the and society was right there. And so this battle was fought from, uh, you know, uh, from that standpoint. And, of course, George Washington was the general then. Most people don't think about it. All of the great leaders that we know, like George Washington, all of the great leaders that we know uh, that are, we call our founding fathers at this point were generals in the British Army. And they are leading the fat battle uh, against the French uh, in this uh, French and Indian War. And basically, you know, uh, all you just need to know about it is, is the fact that it was, again, the devil's attempt to bring the 13 colonies under the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church, because France is Roman Catholic. And, of course, uh, she comes into this country up through New Orleans, and, uh, and, of course, that's been her hotbed uh, for the Jesuit movement. We've talked about that before. And uh, New Orleans is set up after the city in France, which is a Jewish, uh, Jesuit hotbed, uh, Orleans, France. This is called New Orleans. And many of the names in, in New England and places are named after places over in Europe, New Bedford, New Hampshire. Back then it was New Hampshire, Hampshire's in England, and uh, all of those places that you find. And uh, so when you see new on something, you can always remember that it's something that goes back to uh, when they came over from England, and they named a lot of things over there uh, here, uh, but they put a new in front of it to designate it out. But we have the French and Indian War that takes place, and that, that cleaned out the French. And um, so that threat was over. And so for a period of time, you know, the colonies are under British rule, and um, they don't like that. It gets worse. And um, this has all been God's timing. God knew that he was going to use England to establish America, but God also knew that England was going to go into apostasy, so at some point he had to cut the ties with England. This is all how it works, all how it works. 
So we have more problems come up, uh, you know, between England and America, taxation without representation and the Tea Parties, you know, and all this thing, the Boston Tea Party. And, and uh, you know, then we get into armed conflict that, uh, you know, Paul Revere and his famous ride, the British are coming, and basically enters into what we call the Revolutionary War. It's called a Revolutionary War because we were revolutionary against England. And uh, the same generals that were the generals with Britain against the French now form up what is commonly called the Continental Army, and uh, they uh, take up the side of uh, 13 colonies to, uh, to defeat the, uh, the British and get them off, off our soil. And uh, you're going to find that uh, during this period of time, we have other events, the framing of our Constitution in 1776. We have our first president, which is George Washington. Uh, he's not really the first president. I forget who the first guy was, but he's the first one history calls the first president. Um, and we have the development of our public school system. And through that, as America begins to f become uh, a nation through this war, uh, at the end of it, we find names that are very prevalent to us uh, down uh, through history. We have guys like John Locke, 1632 to 1704. Who doesn't know, you may not know who John Locke was, but who doesn't know Benjamin Franklin, 1706 to 1790? John Hancock. He's the guy that wrote real big on the Declaration of Independence, remember? So we, the little joke is, put your John Hancock on here, see? That's where that comes from. He's the guy, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, he wrote real big. He must have had an identity crisis, but he, cause he wrote real big. 1737 to 1793. Who doesn't know Thomas Jefferson? And 1743 to 1826. Uh, George Washington, obviously. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, 1757 to 1804. Now, these men are called our founding fathers, and there's other ones that are added to it. One of the best things that you'll ever get your hands on, and I encourage it, and we sell it back here in the bookstore, uh, one of the founding fathers that I don't have listed here is a guy by the name of uh, Nathaniel Webster, Daniel Webster, to you. And uh, Daniel Webster wrote all of the textbooks, and he was one of our founding fathers. His uh, Ameri American Dictionary of the English Language over there is an 1828 edition. And um, it's probably, uh, from a Bible standpoint, the best dictionary that ever hit the planet. And uh, he actually gives the definitions of many of the words by references in the Bible. Uh, not only is it valuable for that, but there's a section in the beginning on church history and the founding of our, um, our country. It's unparalleled in, in some of the things that you can read in there, and it's a great little aspect to it. Yeah. That was Daniel Webster. Daniel Webster. Nathaniel was 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 is the first name for Daniel. Like mine's Robert, Bob, Nathaniel, Daniel. Who's Noah Webster? No, uh, I'm sorry, you're right. Noah Webster was the guy who wrote. I'm sorry, Nathaniel. Uh, Daniel Webster was a statesman. I'm sorry, completely right. Just Noah Webster. And Noah Webster came off the ark and just hung around till we got here. <laughs> You're right, Zach. Thank you for correcting me on that. Uh, Daniel Webster was the statesman that was part of that. Noah Webster was the guy that, uh, that wrote the dictionary. I am sorry. I stand corrected on that. Very good. Very good. Uh, so uh, these men are called the founding fathers as American history goes. 
they shut down after the Revolutionary War, uh, and they worked through and set up a governing body. And uh, they talk about how that government shall run. Uh, most of these men are not saved. Uh, even our first president, George Washington, was not a Christian. It's amazing to me, and uh, I'm not a great fan of his, but I, I watch it just to learn some things, uh, how that, you know, Glenn Beck has, has got, a, he's got a real thing for uh, bringing the founding fathers into his, his message that he has today for America trying to get America back to the truth by getting them back through the founding fathers. And it's amazing to me when you know church history and you know the history of our country, it's amazing to me how that uh, he, has, uh, he has people on there and everybody tries to make uh, all of the founding fathers Christian. And, um, you know, he had a, and I, I think I told you this before, I don't know if it was here or if it was Thursday night or Sunday morning, there's a, there's a constitutional guy out there by the name of David Barton. Uh, David Barton is, if I have a whole series of, of videos that he did, uh, and somebody else gave me a, a, a VHS of something that he did. I have not listened to it yet. Uh, at some point, I want to put that on CD uh, and, and make it available if it's what he did on the deal. The one I have on VHS is a, you watch on your TV. Uh, he is one of the greatest, greatest guys I have ever heard in my life. I have learned more from listening to him lay out the Constitution and the Bible uh, in, a, in, its, in its incredible format. He is absolutely incredible. I was very disappointed in him um, when he went on, the, he, and Glenn Beck has had him on his program several times. And, and, and I was very disappointed in him because David Barton, to me, uh, was somebody who I never thought would, would, for whatever reason, would compromise the way that he did. But Glenn Beck used him to prove the fact that George Washington was a Christian, that Ben Franklin was a Christian that Thomas Jefferson was a Christian. And, you know, what they do is they go back and they take some, or Beck does anyhow, he goes back and takes some of their writings where they talk about God and they talk about the things of God. Therefore, they concoct the fact that they were Christian based on that. And that's simply not true. George Washington was a deist. What does that mean? It means he believed in God. It means that he believed the Bible was the word of God. He believed in heaven and hell. But what he did not believe in by being a deist, that he, a deist is the word deity. And a deist is someone that does not believe that Jesus Christ was very God, see? And that was his position. And that was many of their positions. Ben Franklin was not a Christian. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian. Now, we had a lot of Christian men in the Founding Fathers, but they not all of them were. And I think that that's very important because, and Glenn Beck, by trying to make them all Christian to make his point that America was a Christian nation, I think he does more damage like he does in most things that he does because he doesn't have a clue about the truth. It wasn't the fact that these men were all Christian. I want you to understand that. It wasn't the fact that our founding fathers were all Christian. Many of them were not Christians. 
But the fact was that the book that was predominant in this country was a King James 1611 authorized version, and even the unsaved men of the time had probably more respect for God and more reverence for the Bible than most of God's people have today. It was the power of the Bible that formed this country, not trying to get everybody to be Christian to form it. And that's where they make a tragic mistake. But those people don't think in Bible terms. They don't have a clue about church history. Uh, They use history and the Bible and the founding fathers for their own political agenda. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing thing. You know, most people do not even know and would be shocked to find out and understand that, you know, Glenn Beck presents himself, and, and you, be, you would be surprised of how many Christians absolutely buy everything into him he says. He talks about God, he talks about the Bible, he talks about Bible principles. He's a Mormon, but nobody knows that. You never heard him get up and talk about his church, his faith. You know what he is? He's a Mormon. But that's, that's how gullible Americans are today. And uh, he gets up and he talks about Gandhi. Today, or the other day, he talked about, he used a quote from Post Pius VI. I mean, he'll use whatever he uses because to him, to get a reading crowd that he has to have, he has to approach to everybody. You put me on his program for one week, buddy, and our ratings will go down, I promise you. But you'll get the truth. And uh, it's a thing where it's just, a, it's just the whole thing, just a mess, yeah. David Barton. Yeah, there's a website on him. I mean, he is a great, great, great guy. I was disappointed in him. Uh, I'll show you the point, and this is what I'm talking about. And uh, he gives you a lot of things like this. Maybe I can find it where I'm at here. Let me find a, I want to show you an example of this so I can find it. I wrote down uh, some of this stuff and I put it in the back of my Bible to show you how this thing works. And uh, John Lott, one of our founding fathers, he says, You have to have good, if you have, here's what he said. He says, if you, now he's an unsaved man. He says, if you have good laws, you will have good government. Now that sounds good. William Penn, who Pennsylvania is named after, here's what he said. He's a saved man. He says, the key is not good laws, but rather the key is good men, saved men. Government are like, Clouds set in motion by men. Good laws do good, but good men do better. For good laws may lack good men, but good men will never lack good laws, nor pass bad ones. Now, his context of good men were saved men, see? He's talking about saved men. And you're going to find it all the way up that our founding fathers, uh, the Bible principles, they they wanted this country based on biblical principles. And... uh, 
when Jonathan, uh, John Adams had asked Thomas Jefferson to frame the, what we know as the Declaration of Independence. And he did it. And when he brought it back, he only had one reference to God. And John uh, Adams told him to go back and put more references to God in it because this country could never forget the hand of God in, in forming this country. So he goes back and puts three more in it, and now there's a total of four in it. And that's just the way the thing went. And you're going to find that uh, from 1780 to 1900, the Supreme Court used this as a basis for dealing with all challenges to the Bible that the, that the country was based on biblical principles. I'll give you a case in point. It was around 18, after the establishment of the Mormon church. Let me show you how it worked. You don't hear this anymore. The Mormon church wanted to have polygamy. And so the government said you cannot have polygamy. So the Mormon church sued the government because under the concepts of separation in church and state that the government could not infringe on a church. And they took it to the Supreme Court. You know what the Supreme Court, how they ruled? When the Mormon church brought it to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, the justices of the Supreme Court, here's what they ruled. They ruled that that was true, that the church had no business to interfere in, in Christian uh, religion because of the fact of the separation of church and state. But the Mormon church was not defined as a Christian religion. So therefore, it did not apply to them and they couldn't have polygamy. The Supreme Court defined the Mormon church as not the Christian religion. That was in about in 1850, 1860. The Supreme Court said, yeah, there is a separation of church and state, but it's for true Bible Christianity, and you're not a true Bible Christianity. <laughs> Try that today. <laughs> but that's the way it was, man. That's the way it was. And uh, it, uh, it, 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 you know, it just, you, you, when you go back and you look at it, it's incredible. It's incredible, all the things that, uh, uh, that takes place. And, uh, you know, when you realize that this country was not set up as a democracy, it was set up as a republic. And a republic is different than a democracy. A democracy runs by, if you have majority, it rules. If you have 100 people and, they want, and, and, and uh, 51 want to support abortion and 49 don't, the 51 wins. But in a republic, it's not based on popular vote. A republic is based on the principles that are already established in the Word of God that cannot be changed. And that's how a republic operates. And uh, it's just one of those things. That Mormon deal was in 1878. And it was over the issue of polygamy. And, of course, uh, it's, it's incredible stuff. And these men are the founding fathers. And, and even though that it's all built on that, and even though our infallible cycle holds true that the thing begins to unravel, it was the preaching of a King James 1611. It wasn't the fact that all the founding fathers were, were, were saved people. Majority of them were not. But the spirit of that day was that this country was built on a book that everybody believed, even if you were lost. It, it, the unsaved men back there had more respect for God and the Word of God than most saved people do today. And that's a hard grasp, thing to grasp. But you're going to find that it's all built into our government. And uh, um, 
You know, the Bill of Rights comes in, and from the very start, the Bill of Rights makes it clear that America, like no other nation in the world, was, 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 was going to have, uh, that everybody in it was going to have the chance to hear Bible truth and Bible doctrine and Bible preaching without the harassment of a church-state setup from the Roman Catholic Church or any other church. Through the influence of the Bible preaching and the Bible believing, Thomas Jefferson, unsaved man, James Madison, unsaved man, George Mason, an unsaved man, all took the Baptist view of no taxes to support ministries. This bill was called the Act to Establish Religious Freedom in 1785. This bill became an immediate case for the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights, which states Congress cannot pass any laws to recognize the Roman Catholic Church as the true church or any other church, force anyone to be baptized or sprinkled, make people attend Mass or recognize the Pope as some spiritual leader, kill or imprison anybody for ridiculing the Mass of the Pope, force you to read the Catholic Bible and dump your King James Bible, kill or imprison anybody uh, for uh, 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 not adhering to the Pope or designing him as the Antichrist, force Protestants to support Catholic schools with your tax money, and stop Christians from winning Catholics to Christ. America became the first country in the history of the world, the history of the New Testament church, to grant religious freedom to anti-Catholics. And of course, that was the basis that the whole country was built on because every founding father knew what the church states did in Europe. And I'll tell you what, the Roman Catholic Church was not popular. The Roman Catholic Church did not become popular in this country till after about 1970. I mean, most of you were not born at that point, and most of you do not remember uh, John F. Kennedy when he came into office and how that, uh, uh, up to that point, <coughs> that uh, Catholics were not thought of very well in this country. And it goes back because of the lingering things that took place through uh, the Reformation when this country was formed. And uh, the fact that Kennedy got elected president uh, was a milestone and that's another whole story of how that the, even though the Catholic Church was not popular, how by the time Kennedy came into power, they were running this government. Every, everything in this government was run by a Roman Catholic through Cardinal Spellman. And we'll get into that when we get into the latest in church period and we start to take the side plates off of America and show you what's going into the inside of it. Yeah. What was that act again? Act of what? Um, the act of... Um, The act to establish uh, the act to establish religious freedom, seventeen eighty five. The First Amendment to the Bill of Rights, which is your right to free speech, ensured that America uh, started its national life as a country um, as anti-Catholic nation because of all the Roman Catholic laws and decrees from 500 A.D. to 1900. Everything that I gave you in that list is exactly what was against the law to do in Europe. And the Roman Catholic Church enforced it. And, uh, and the Roman Catholic Church, through its laws and decrees from 500 A.D. to 1900 A.D., said that the duty of every government she controlled was to ensure that the above things that we mentioned were not to happen. And the country was a... Uh, was a 
uh, was enforced by political armies and uh, police, uh, and that's what a church-state setup is. You cannot question the church. That is the state religion. So then we see as we enter the 1800s, America on her way like no other nation. She has religious freedom to preach the absolute word of God, a King James 1611, as much as she wants. This was accomplished by Baptist preachers and Baptist teachers. And its influence on the Continental Congress of 1776 is undeniable. The Great Awakening had done its job. And here again, God brought the Great Awakening in right at the time that this country was being founded, that it was being formed, that it was writing its Constitution, its Declaration of Independence, its Bill of Rights, and the impact of the King James 1611 by Bible-believing, Bible-preaching men powered by the Holy Spirit of God uh, as this nation was formed is unbelievable. And... uh, you know, and next week, we're going to look at the main assault that the devil throws at this revival. Uh, and uh, we're going to see the, uh, how he tries to counter this thing. But we would be a great amiss if we did not look at some of the men during this period of time that you need to get down and understand at least who they are and a little bit about them that <clears throat> were the long-reaching effects of the great uh, first awakening. The first guy we want to just talk about for a moment is a guy by the name of Charles Finney, 1792 to 1875. He's born in Warren, uh, Warren, Connecticut. He grows up in New York. He taught school and studied law privately. In 1818, he entered law office of uh, Benjamin White in Adams, New York. Through studying law, he is introduced to the Bible, and on October 10, 1821, he becomes saved. He then dropped his law practice and became an evangelist. He was very basic, crude, rough preacher who told it like it was and was not popular with the educated class. The highlights of his ministry was from 1824 to 1832, nine years during which time he shook the eastern seaboard for Christ. One meeting in Rochester, New York, saw 1,200 converts and 40 men surrendered to the ministry. In his lifetime, over 500,000 people responded to his preaching uh, for salvation. We have another man by the name of Robert Moffat, 1795 to 1883. He's born in Scotland, a pious but very poor parents. At an early age, he became an apprentice to learn gardening or farming. After his training, he moved to England, where he was won to Christ by some uh, Wesleyan Methodists. He became a great missionary out of the uh, Great Awakening and out of the uh, movement of the Philadelphian Church Age to Cape Town, South Africa, where he served in the mission field for 51 years of his life. We have George Mueller, 1805 to 1898. He's a German, born in, and, and raised in Prussia. He lived in sin and crime, uh, but while studying for the ministry for the state church, which would be Lutheran, uh, he was saved at a prayer meeting in a private home. And from that time, his life was changed. He moved to England and applied to the London Missionary Society as a missionary to the Orient. After he is turned down, uh, he preaches wherever he can to whomever will listen. In 1834, he founded the Scriptural Knowledge Institution for Home and Abroad. One year later, he opened his first orphanage. Uh, 
uh, for 26 girls, even though he had no money. By 1870, he had five large orphans' homes and was feeding 2,100 kids daily. He solicited no financial help, but only told the Lord his daily needs. Hundreds of kids were won to Christ over the years. The Scriptural Knowledge Institute turned out 121,000 Christian workers. They turned out 300,000 Bibles, a half a million New Testaments, and 111 million tracts. In 63 years of prayer, he prays in $7.5 million. Now keep in mind, this is in the 1870s. Mueller read the Bible through 200 times, half of that time on his knees. His promise, open wide thy mouth, and I will fill it. And one of studying his life and reading his life of George Mueller is one of the greatest things that you'll ever read and go through. We have A.B. Earl, 1812 to 1895, born in Charleston, New York. He was converted at age 16, began preaching two years later. At age 21, he was ordained, and after a short uh, pastorate, spent the next 58 years of his life as an evangelist in every state in America, in much of Canada. Uh, his message of Christ the Savior. In 58 years, he traveled 370,000 miles, held, uh, uh, held uh, 39,330 services, and had over 160,000 converts. He wrote the following books on evangelism. Bringing in the Shears, Abiding Peace, Rest of Faith, The Human Will, The Work of an Evangelist, The Evidence of Conviction, Winning Souls, uh, and Other Great Theological Works. And he's a great one to study. Then we have one that most people already know about, William Booth, 1829 to 1912, born in uh, North Hampshire, England. Won to Christ by a Methodist minister and soon became a worker with the poor and outcast. Uh, of England. He preached on the streets, made hundreds of hospital calls, and he organizes the East London Christian Revival Society, which later becomes known as the Salvation Army. We see the Salvation Army here in America, but most people do not know that it started in England and then moves over to America. An example of the man movement and machine in the, in the, uh, in the uh, monument uh, is the Salvation Army. It started with William Booth. <clears throat> That's a man. It went into a movement, a great soul-winning endeavor called the Salvation Army. After his death, it turned into a slick, organized, professional machine. And today, uh, the Salvation Army is just a monument. They wear the little hats. They wear the little uniform. They blow the little horn. They stand out there with a little tambourine by the big kettles. But there isn't anybody one to Christ anymore. They don't believe that the Bible is the word of God. They believe you can lose your salvation. And uh, if William Booth would walk through the first uh, church here in Kansas City, the Salvation Army, he'd have a heart attack before he got past the first ashtray. I mean, it's uh, totally meshed back in apostate uh, in a credible way. Unbelievable. And uh, two, million, uh, two million dialects, uh, derelicts, excuse me, two million derelicts had professed Christ from his work. He died in 1912, and uh, that was right at Christmas time. And they were waiting for uh, him to give their, their traditional Christmas message that he gave every year. And he was very sick, and he died two days later. 
and they brought the radio to him, and uh, he was going to address them from his hospital bed, and uh, everybody around was tuning in to hear the great uh, leader of the Salvation Army uh, give his famous address, and he was very weak and very sick, and he was ready to die. And uh, his message to the people that night in 1912 was simply one word, and it was the word others. And his whole life was built on others, doing for others what they could not do for themselves. Then we have Dwight, uh, Thomas Dwight Talmadge, 1832 to 1902. Talmadge was a country boy of humble parents, the last of 12 children. He was converted at age 18, and, uh, and then he, he joined and united with the Dutch Reformed Church. During the Civil War, he served a chaplain in the Union Army. Union Army. His preaching was clear and direct and powerful. Later, he pastored the Brooklyn Tabernacle. His sermons were printed in 3,500 newspapers in America and Europe uh, every week. Most people don't know this, but back in these time periods, great preachers like this, everybody recognized how great and preaching they were. And even at this time, there still was an absolute reverence for the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. Guys like D.L. Moody, guys like Talmadge, every newspaper in this country printed in full bloom their sermons that they preached on Sunday, not only in this country, but in Europe, and especially in England. And 3,500 newspapers put his Sunday sermon in every week in America and Europe. And uh, he was a great orator, preaching without aid of notes and great power, and he has been compared to uh, the power of George Whitfield, who was an incredible guy. We have James Hudson Taylor, 1832 to 1905, born at uh, Barnsky, England, son of a Methodist minister. Being a weak child, he was taught uh, in his early years at home by his parents, which built uh, his Bible faith and character. At age four, uh, he was heard to say, when I am a man, I will be a missionary and go to China. He was saved at 17, went to medical school, and also studied theology. Then he went to China as a missionary. He translated the King James Bible in the Ningping dialect, and later through him, God founded the China Inland Mission in 1866. In 1877, his wife and two children died of cholera in China. He later remarried and spent the rest of his life recruiting and training missionaries from England and North America. Before his death, he saw 205 mission stations established in China, 849 men and women from America on the foreign field, and turned out 125,000 preachers and lay ministers in China alone. And uh, it's just incredible what God is doing during this period of time. We have the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 1834 to 1892, born in Kelvington, England, 1834. His father was an independent Baptist preacher. Spurgeon was converted at age 16 and immediately began preaching. His ability and the power of God so uh, enveloped his life that he pastored his first church in 1852 when he was only 18 years of age. In the next few years, that church grew into the Metropolitan Tabernacle, running over 6,000 people on Sunday. And here he spent the rest of his life preaching and winning people to Christ. No man in the 19th century had more of an impact on England than Spurgeon. 
He was the most popular preacher in London and was hailed as the greatest preacher uh, since the Apostle Paul. Before his death in 1892, he had published over 2,000 uh, sermons and 49 volumes of commentaries. And of course, here's another great example. If you would go to England today and you would step into the Metropolitan Tabernacle, you would find it a mausoleum. It's cold. It's dead. There hasn't been anybody saved there for the last 75 years. It's an apostasy. It's a showboat. It's nothing more than an empty uh, sepulcher where people go because it was Spurgeon's church. There's no gospel preached. There's no Bible preached. There's no soul saved. There's no nothing. Man, movement, machine, monument. We have Adonijah Judson Gordon, named after the famous missionary Adonijah Judson that we talked about earlier, 1836 to 1895, born in New Hampton, New Hampshire in 1836. His parents were Christians. As a young man, he worked long hours in his father's lumber mill. At about 15, he was converted to Christ. A year later, he felt the call to the ministry. After attending Newton Theological Seminary, he pastored a church in Jamaica Plain near Boston. Six years, and um, six years, he moved to the Clarendon Street Baptist Church in Boston, and was there uh, for the for the for, for the next fifty some years of his life. From this pastorate, he sees the church uh, touch the world and evangelize America. His writings, as well as his preaching, is very powerful. His work on the threefold aspect of the Holy Spirit is a masterpiece. He also was a hymn writer. His better known hymns being, My Jesus, I Love Thee, in our book over here. I Shall See the King in His Beauty. I believe that's also in over here. On February 2nd, 1895, his last word as he went home to be with the Lord and died was the word victory. Dwight L. Moody, 1837 to 1899. Born at Northfield, Massachusetts, America's best-loved and best-known preacher of the 1800s. His father died when he was four. He had to quit school at 13 and go to work in his uncle's shoe shop. A man named Edward Kimball, who was his Sunday school teacher, won him to Christ when he was 17. He later moved to Chicago to work with the YMCA. Now, back then, the YMCA, and here's another system. Back then, the YMCA, and the YMCA stands for Young Men's Christian Association. Later, they got the YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Association. Back then, the YMCA was an evangelistic, soul-winning organization uh, on the power of the Salvation Army. And they were, they were, they were avid soul winners. And uh, they were people who they, they preached the Bible. They took people in. And uh, their whole goal was through their system was to, as it says, Young Men's Christian Association. And they won people to Christ today. <laughs> yeah, right. <coughs> it, that old system. Then he worked as a chaplain in both the Northern and Southern Armies during the Civil War. In 1866, he became president of the YMCA of Chicago and from there traveled all over Europe holding revivals there and in America. Ira Sankey, most of you don't know who Ira Sankey was. He, he, was, a great, he was a great musician, great singer. And uh, Ira Sankey would travel with him and lead the music for him. And them two together, uh, uh, I mean, absolutely over those years of those great evangelism. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousand people came to Christ. Uh, 
Now, the key to this thing here, uh, in this particular case here, is something that, that uh, I think, for me, puts it all into perspective. And that was the fact that you hear uh, volumes about D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody uh, had uh, uh, an incredible ministry. In 1879, he establishes the Northfield Seminary for Women. And in 1881, the Mount Hermon School for Men. And in 1889, he founded Moody Bible Institute. And uh, today, uh, you go to Chicago, his church is still there. It's called Moody Church. And the the Moody Bible Institute uh, is still there today. It's called the Chicago Bible Institute. And uh, during its heyday, when he was there, it sent over one million people came to Christ through his preaching in all the areas of his ministry. If you'd walk into Moody Church today, it's a graveyard. Cold, dead, nobody saved, <coughs> no Bible, no teaching. You go to Moody Bible College today, and it is, a, it is a dentist seminary where they will talk you out of the Bible, and it's an absolutely, an absolute travesty. Why? Because that cycle always follows itself and takes care of itself. Now, we hear a lot about Dwight L. Moody and all that he did and the millions of people that he won to Christ. But the thing that always puts it into context for me is everybody remembers D.L. Moody, but nobody remembers Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was the man who God used to win D.L. Moody to Christ. I told you a story here. He was a Sunday school teacher. When we get to the judgment seat of Christ, Dwell Moody, from all appearances, will walk up there and he'll get everything that God had for him, a man that burned out his life, da 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 da, da gave everything, and God will give him everything. And then right after Moody steps out of the way, the guy that'll come up will get five times what Moody did will be Edward Kimball. The man that nobody knew. The man that if you ask the, the, the next 20 Christians who won D.L. Moody to Christ. Do you know who Moody is? Oh, yeah, D.L. Moody is a great preacher. Who won him to Christ? Nobody knows who won him to Christ, and that's the way it works in Christianity. It's not the D.L. Moody's of life, though they do great things, but there would not be a D.L. Moody if there wasn't a faithful Edward Kimball. D.L. Moody may get the glory down here, and he should, but Edward Kimball will get it up there, and he will. Because that's how God works the thing. Now, to me, that puts things into perspective. Maybe it doesn't do anything for you. Jeremiah McCauley, 1839 to 1884, born in, in country Kearney, Ireland. His father fled from the law when he was 12. At 13, he was sent to America to live with a sister in New York City. Soon he was a gang member, also in trouble with the law. Finally, he served 15 years in Sing Sing Prison. He was led to Christ through the efforts of a lady who witnessed to the man in prison. His life was so changed that he was released in in 1864 after serving only seven years and two months. In October of 1872, he opened the Water Street Mission in the heart of crime in New York City. He is responsible for the modern mission movement in the great cities of America, including the City Union Mission down here, which comes into being around 1925-26. And thousands of men's lives were changed by his life and by his message. B.H. Campbell, 1834 to 1914. You see, most people don't understand all of the things that God did. We go to the City Union Mission, and we see it as a building down there. But the truth of the matter is, the City Union Mission, the City Union Mission 
was started in that great missionary uh, mission movement that starts in this time with this guy. And uh, it was one of the great evangelists, and I, I, don't, I don't remember if it was Gypsy Smith or whoever it was, but it was the great, uh, one of the great evangelists that preached in Kansas City, and the head uh, uh, mistress of all the whorehouses in Kansas City somehow, some way, shape, or form went to hear him preach and got saved. And when she got saved, she turned her life around and she turned all of her houses of ill repute into the beginning of the City Union Mission. And it was taken over by a guy by the name of Buckley and his wife. In fact, for years and years and years, uh, I had high school camp when I was a youth pastor and I rented out the, the, the camp down in Warsaw, Missouri. That is the, uh, that is the camp that was originally built in the 20s to run as a, a farm where the, the derelicts could go down there and dry out and work on the farm and it was self-producing and they turned it in time into a camp. And we went down there for 10, 15 years in the camp. And you go into one of the buildings down there uh, where they have a, their, their craft thing, you'll see a a long deal with a big mirror on top of it with all that stuff. All that furniture down there come out of that whorehouse when that Whaley got saved and he didn't know what to do with it and all that furniture wound up down at the down at the camp down there and adorns the or uh, adorns the uh, uh, chapel in there where I mean you talk about from rags to riches brother from sin to glory. I mean it's, it's all right there and uh, it's an incredible story but here again here again I know we go down to the City Union Mission and preach, and we go down there, you know, and we have a good job, but the truth of the matter is that place is as dead as, as you could ever want in your life. No Bible. I mean, they may get people saved, but they don't get them saved with a King James Bible. You look up at the verses on the wall, they ain't King James, and uh, they're about as out of touch with the reality of they could ever be. But there again, that old cycle, that old cycle. And... Uh, we have B.H. Carroll, 1843 to 1914, born in Carrollton, Mississippi, to the son of a preacher farmer. He served in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. In 1865, he was saved in an old woodshed by a Methodist evangelist. He was ordained one year later. He preached for a number of years until he became head of the Bible Department at Baylor University. Uh, he did the work, uh, The Trail of Blood which is a little red book that is one of the greatest single little pamphlets you'll ever get on church history. You got Cyrus Ingersoll Schofield, commonly known C.I. Schofield, 1843 to 1921, born in Michigan. His name ranks foremost among the most Bible students. His mother died at his birth, but his last prayer was for, but her last prayer was for her son to become a Baptist preacher. He also uh, was a soldier in the Confederate Army. He was a general. Decorated for bravery after the war, he entered law and moved to Kansas. In 1869, was appointed by President Grant as U.S. District Attorney for the state of Kansas. Through some trials of his life, he was won to Christ by a YMCA worker, Thomas McFeeters. From there, his life in Christ grows as he preaches uh, and learns how to love God uh, through discussions with Hudson Taylor. He feels a, build, a burden for the mission, missionary work and sets up the Central American Missions in 18, uh, 1890. Through his vast knowledge of God's Word, he produces the Schofield Reference Bible, still in use today. Truly is one of the great men during this period of time. Now these men and the followers of these men are the grandchildren, are the byproducts of the Great Awakening. 
and the aftermath of that tremendous revival. In fact, the preaching of these men from 1780 to 1900 bring about the other great awakenings that we'll talk about when we get to that point next week. But now we've got another segment. We've talked about the Reformation. We've seen how the Reformation came into being. We saw the churches that come out of the Reformation. We saw it move from England and Europe over to America. We saw the founding fathers. We saw how God has brought the thing through. We saw how that in every step of the way, through the Reformation, through the coming into America, how that old concept of apostasy sneaks in as the devil destroys or tries to destroy what's God doing. And now we've come up to the first great awakening and seen not only its impact on this country and our founding fathers, but how the reverberations of that and the aftershock of that carries all the way down and brings about the other awakenings. But there was never or nor where there ever will be a waking, a great awakening on the, on, the, uh, on the magnitude of the first great awakening. And that's the one that God used to solidify this nation into the Bible. And each one of them has a little less impact and a little less work and a little less power because this country begins to walk away from the Bible and there can be no revival without the Word of God. So we'll hold up there and we'll continue to put all these pieces together when we're done. For those of you that had hung with it, you'll have an absolutely complete concept and picture of how this thing goes with all the pieces in the right places. So.